Let's talk about Matthew 7. This is um, Jesus. Uh, I got to start my timer because I got a lot I want to say this morning, but no, don't necessarily shouldn't say all of it. All right. <laughs> you don't want me to say everything. All right. Because this is actually a lot of ground in terms of text on the page. And typically, we tend to take these uh, metaphors or parables from, they're not really parables, they're not stories, they're metaphors, teachings from Jesus on their own. And you can't do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's interesting when you put them all together and recognize that there's a theme here. Jesus is teaching the, the same basic idea through multiple vantage points, okay? And so when you read them all together, you kind of get that perspective. So that's what I want to do this morning. Um, it's cover, there, there, there's four metaphors, four, all of them are short. There's the two gates, the two fruit trees, the two claims, and the two builders. Most of them will be familiar to, to you because, if, at least if you grew up in church, which obviously not everyone did, but these are cl kind of classic Bible stories because they're simple metaphors that kids can understand, and so they're familiar, but we don't usually hear them all together um, like this. And so let's take, I'm just going to take one at a time and go as quickly as I can, and then we'll put them together at the end. So Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy, the way or the road, you could say. The way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Yeah, so this should be obvious by now if you've really heard everything that Jesus has been teaching up to this point, that the narrow gate is everything that he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, think back through all the really hard things Jesus said in that. Like, if you really let them be hard and don't, don't try to just quickly explain them away. Like, he didn't really mean it. He's not being that intense. He's, he's nicer than that. My Jesus is nicer than that. Now, there's some really hard stuff, like be perfect, right? Ah, that's kind of hard to wiggle your way out of that, right? And, and so, this is, that's, so if you want to know, what does Jesus mean by the narrow way? Well, just read back the chapter before, the couple of chapters before, and you'll see what he means by that, that this is hard stuff. Being, following Christ is not a cakewalk. And it's costly. It costs you personally. Not just in kind of general, like it costs us way, but it costs me personally. And it costs me not just a few things, but it really costs you your whole life. Right? So this is not, Jesus is not calling us to an easy thing. And he's saying it as explicitly and clearly as he can. He's calling us to a hard thing, but where does the hard way lead? It leads to life. Where does the wide, easy path lead? It leads to death, right? So it's not all bad. He's saying it's hard, but my goodness, is it worth it, right? It's a narrow way. It's a hard way. Take up your cross. He uses that kind of language. Where does the cross lead? It leads to eternal life, right? That's the theme. And this introduces the theme of all of these teachings, right? Carries through all of these metaphors. If the gospel you are hearing does not include things like sacrifice, trial, suffering, persecution, service, denial of self, then you are hearing a false gospel. 
This does not mean that the gospel is only difficult or that God isn't good to his kids. God loves to bless us. Think of it this way. If the gospel you're hearing or preaching, for that matter, we'll get to that in a minute, would not make sense in a war-torn third world country, then it's an anemic gospel. Much of the gospel we preach and hear in the United States makes no sense in a third world country where they don't have stuff. If you're preaching that God, that a sign of your good, sign of good, strong faith is lots of stuff, then what do you do if you're someone in a place that has no stuff? Your definition of faith is anemic, and your gospel is anemic if it can't speak to that, right? And so it's easy for us in a very comfortable place to hear a weak, anemic gospel and not recognize it for what it is because we're in such a comfortable place. Okay, let's move on to the two trees. Matthew 7, 15 to 20, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. If every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So first of all, we could say, you know, when he says false prophets, this is pre-Pentecost. And so it's not just in post-Pentecost where we're living in the new, you know, kind of New Testament church world. We could say a prophet, and the way he means it is, is like you could say a false prophet, yes, but also false teachers, false leaders in the body of Christ, all right? In Jesus' day, there was a common thorn bush that would produce little black berries that could be mistaken for grapes from a distance. And it was very common all over the place. And you go, oh, there's a grapevine, and you get closer and realize, no, it's a thorn bush. And there was a well-known thistle that produced a flower that looked like a fig tree from a distance. And so you'd see and go, oh, that's a fig tree. And you'd get a little closer and realize, oh, that's not a fig tree. That's a thistle, right? And it's sort of bitterly disappointing, especially if you're hungry and you haven't had anything sweet for a while and you can't go down to the corner store and buy chocolate or whatever other sweet thing. The only sweet things are hanging on trees. And you see, oh, a fig tree. Oh, I would love just a fig right now. You get up close and go, oh, it's not a fig tree. Oh, you got me once again. So up close, under closer inspection, you find out that the fruit of that tree is not what you thought it was. This is what some false prophets and false teachers are like. They look like the real thing at first glance. They teach doctrine that maybe isn't heretical, at least on the surface of it. Unlike some more obvious false teachers, that's not who Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the ones who, are, who look like the real thing but aren't. They seem to hear from God. They describe powerful dreams, visions, supernatural visitations. They speak with authority and they have lots of followers. They look like a real fig tree. Indeed, they look just like the sheep in every way because they're wolves in sheep's clothing. So if you look at the sheepfold, you see nothing but sheep. But maybe in there is one that's not really a sheep, it's a wolf. And what do wolves do? They devour the sheep. 
They're devouring the real sheep and leading them astray, leading them to destruction, as he puts it. So we can see two ways, at least I see here in this text, to uncover the wolf that's hiding in sheep's clothing, okay? One is that, you know, just looking at the context of this verse, this would be someone who does not point to the real biblical Jesus and does not preach the real complete gospel. It does not include the narrow way. It doesn't include the stuff that Jesus has been teaching us for the last, what, 14 weeks. D.A. Carson's commentary, he says this. I think it's great. I have two Carson quotes this morning. He's great. His commentary on the Sermon on the Mount is fantastic. He says this, There is nothing in their preaching which fosters poverty of spirit. Nothing which searches the conscience and makes men cry to God for mercy. Nothing which excoriates all forms of religious hypocrisy. Nothing which prompts such righteousness of conduct and attitude that some persecution is inevitable. It is even possible in some instances that everything these false prophets say is true. But because they leave out the difficult bits, they do not tell the whole truth. Their total message is false. That's Jesus' point. I would also include in this any message that requires human means to accomplish divine promises. God's going to do this, but he needs people to respond this way. If the prophetic word requires a particular political outcome, that's the most recent example of false prophecy I've seen that is rampant. Is God going to bless America if the Republicans win? That's false prophecy. Or if a particular law to be passed. I, we, God doesn't need man's laws to do what God wants to do. He doesn't. If it's that kind of prophecy, that prophecy is being heralded from the wide path and not the narrow path. That's a teacher who's standing in the wide path, pretending like he's standing in the narrow path. I'm sure we can all think of examples of movements and church leaders who refuse to do things like say sin is sin. Or refuse to do things like draw any kind of moral boundary around our behavior at all. Who refuse to talk about hell, even though Jesus talked about hell more than anybody. I say, Jesus wants to be your friend, but he has no expectations. And you have to leave out the first half of the book of Matthew to even say that out loud with a straight face. So the second test is explicit right in this text, not in the context, which says a false prophet or a false teacher will be seen by close inspection of the fruit of their life. This is not how we typically call out a false prophet or teacher. We typically look at, we say, well, the, the, the test of a false teacher is do they teach false things? Or a test of a false prophet is does his prophecy come true? But Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is someone who looks legit, who looks like the real thing until you look at what? The fruit of their life. When you look at their character, when you look at the outcome of their life, you see something rotten and not good. And then when you see that, the whole thing 
is false. So what is the outcome of their message in their life? Does it produce peace? Do they have good character? If they speak predictive prophecy, does it come to pass? Missing it now and then is allowed. For New Testament prophecy, that's why we have, we judge prophecy. But what about the track record? If they're wrong, how do they react? You can really find out a lot about a person when you, when you show them that they were wrong about something. You said this in your sermon and it was wrong. Alan Austin has said that to me many times. <laughs> Not every week. But he has. How do you react when somebody does that? When a, prof, a, a prophet prophesies something and it turns out not to happen, how do they react? Do they double down? Is it, no, 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 it's because y'all didn't have enough faith, you didn't pray hard enough. Or do they just go, I was wrong. I repent. It tells you a lot about somebody, about how they react when they're wrong. Is there an, a consistent trend towards increasing humility, obedience to Christ, love for neighbor, graciousness, prayerfulness, love, generosity, purity, and truthfulness? Are they willingly submitted to others who know them, and are they meaningfully accountable to the local church? Here's the problem. You can't see character from the Internet. Have you noticed this? <laughs> like even right now, to you guys who don't know me watching through this camera, I look pretty good to you. I physically look funny. But you're kind of thinking, that guy seems like he's got it together. You don't see me on like Tuesday morning when I've just gotten out of bed and I don't want to do, do my life anymore, right? <laughs> I don't want to talk to you. I don't talk to my kids. I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to sit and mope and whine and complain and be curmudgeonly. If you saw me at like 8.30 on Monday morning through this camera, and I didn't know you were watching, you'd be like, I don't know if that guy's got it together. But you don't see that because you can't see character from the Internet. It doesn't work that way. It has to be local and personal. Yet our, the church world is buzzing constantly with these heroes we create over the internet, prophets roaming around, slinging their prophecies all over, completely bypassing the accountability of the local church and local eldership, local judge, judging the words locally. Paul makes no room for that in 1 Corinthians. There is, that is, there is no biblical pre precedent for the idea of someone who can tell you what God says to you without it passing through the local church in some way. Yet we celebrate and lionize these people. They don't know you and you don't know them. Don't kid yourself. I'm not saying they're all evil, horrible people. But just this week, I don't know if you saw it, I'm sure most of you saw it. Ravi Zacharias. They did a report. He just died a few months ago. He's an apologist who is... By, even by me, very well regarded, very well respected, thought of as not just a hero of being able to like interact with lost people and atheists and defend the faith, but also just a hero of good character, somebody who treated people right. It comes out that he, he just died, 
which makes it extra sad, that he's been going all around the country and all around the world, and he has many, many women who he has abused around the world. Documented, using his position, even using his spiritual and uh, authority and his knowledge of the Bible to manipulate women, and it is wicked and evil and disappointing. It's disappointing because you see, because of all the people he abused, the women he took advantage of and manipulated, and it's disappointing because he thought he was one thing and turns out he was something else. You can't see character from the internet. And that revelation cast, I don't know if he's, he was saved or not. I can't make a judgment on that. But what I can say is character matters. It matters far more than giftedness. Giftedness is maybe the least important thing we can judge a person by. Like how good, how competent they are at preaching or how competent they are at making arguments and writing books and doing these things, how good they are, how charismatic they seem to be, or how kind they seem to be when the world is watching them. That is the least important thing about that person. The most important thing about any of us is our character. And so when you find out that someone had terrible character, evil character, we were right to say that casts a dark shadow over every single thing they ever did or said. All of their ministry is suspect because that is a false teacher. Not because what he said was wrong, not because his doctrine was wrong. All that stuff was right in line, right in order. He's a false teacher because the fruit was wicked and rotten. This should break our heart. But it should be a loud reminder that the people with the loudest voice in your life should be the people that know you. <laughs> that you know, or you have seen their life. You have seen the way they live and the way they act when they're under pressure and when the camera is not on them and when that's how you know a person. This is getting really hard. Isn't it? Because the way the world works is not this way. <laughs> the internet, especially social media, has created an outlet for anyone that wants to teach or wants to prophesy, and they can do it while bypassing the local church, bypassing being known by anyone, and pretend if they want to pretend. All right, verse 21 through 23. Jesus gets a little more specific and a little harder here. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You have two types of people approach Jesus to enter heaven. One respectfully calls him Lord. You're my Lord. You're, you're my king. 
Perhaps this is someone that has all their theology in order and has claimed all their life to have great respect for God. I would never curse in the house of the Lord, but I'll curse in the parking lot. I would never say this or do this in the presence of God, but I'll say those things and do those things in my own home and with my buddies who aren't Christians. But I have great respect for the church and for God because those are good people. And he's my God, the man upstairs, way, way upstairs. <laughs> then you have these people who come and they say, hey, here's all the evidence, Jesus, of all the great spiritual acts and acts of faith that I did in your name. I prophesied, prophesied accurately in your name. I did these miracles. I had these supernatural experiences. I had great faith. I prophesied in your name, yet they have not obeyed the teaching of Jesus. Interestingly enough, Jesus does not dispute their claims. That's hard. I don't understand that. Can I just confess to you? I don't understand why God would give someone all these gifts when they're so broken on the inside, why he would allow a false prophet to prophesy, why he would allow a false teacher to teach, why doesn't he make it more obvious? I don't know. Maybe there's some philosophical answer I've never thought of, but it bothers me, but it's the truth. Jesus doesn't dispute their claims. This means that a minister of the gospel can be right in the orthodoxy of their teaching and the accuracy of their prophecy and still be completely wrong before Jesus. We need to remember this. Now you can be, I'm not trying to push you to be cynical and like, ah, I don't like this guy. Like you can kind of go into this sort of heresy hunter, false teacher hunter mode where you trust no one and you put up websites and you start like attacking everybody um, don't, I'm not pushing you there. Like, be hopeful, trust God, because the fruit will eventually be revealed. It will. That's the lesson, one of the many lessons of Rabbi Zacharias. Is death itself is no escape from what you're hiding. The fruit will be revealed. Then we have the two houses, verse 24 to 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, <laughs> hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and the great and great was the fall of it. Great was the fall of Rabbi Zacharias and many, many others. This metaphor is not so much about the rock but about the, how the builders build. You can see that you have one builder who build, he hears. They both hear the words of Jesus. One does them, one does not do them. The one who does not do, do them is like a builder who builds on the sand. The one who does obey the teachings of Jesus builds on the rock. 
Both houses look good at first. We're talking about the foundation. When I drive through a neighborhood, I don't, I'm not, of course, maybe if you're a builder, you do this, but I don't drive through a neighborhood and go, oh, wow, check out the foundation of that house. That is a beautiful foundation. I love the way they did this or that. You look at the house. The house looks nice. It looks like a fig tree. It looks like a grapevine. But get up close and you realize it's not. How do you find out when the wind and the rain come, when the, when the, the difficulty comes, when the, the storm comes into your life, when the rain comes and the wind, or someone dies or whatever it is, the thing that's tested and God tests it. And what you find out is, wait a minute, that house is, not, is unmoved. That house is just sinking into the earth. Something's wrong with that one. That's not a house I want to be in. One house is faulty, the other is not, despite the appearance. You start to see the point. That's why I think it's so helpful to read all of these together, because you start to see this repeating idea. That character matters more than everything else. It matters more than giftedness. It matters more. Like I, your house may be pretty and it may look great. You may have spent a lot of money putting it together. It may be perfectly clean and just immaculate from the street. But if it sinks into the earth when there's a thunderstorm, it's a useless house. It's a false house. There's another quote. It is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience. But it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, but it is equally true that God's grace in man's life inevitably results in obedience. Any other view of grace cheapens grace and turns it into something unrecognizable. Cheap grace preaches forgiveness without repentance, church membership without rigorous church discipline, discipleship without obedience, blessing without persecution, joy without righteousness, results without obedience. In the entire history of the church, has there ever been another generation with so many nominal Christians and so few real obedient ones, and where nominal Christianity is compounded by specular profession or spectacular profession, it is especially likely to manufacture its own false assurance. Character matters most before calling and certainly before giftedness. It matters most in your life and it matters most in who you listen to who you give the most, put the most trust in. The people with the loudest voice in your life should be those that are local to you and have the fruit of a life lived in obedience to Christ. Not perfect just yet, <laughs> but on the way there. I think these days, maybe more than any in my lifetime, this is so important and so difficult. Especially now that everybody's kind of going online. It's the thing that makes me worried constantly. Is that what this camera does to me and to you. And how we see each other. It's a tough problem, but I think it starts with just listening to Jesus. Jesus. He says, you'll know a tree by its fruit. Amen. All right. Why don't we stand up and pray together if you're here in the room.
if you're, I guess if you're in your living room, you can stand up if you like. I will have no idea if you're doing that or not. But for the rest of us, it's good to get some blood flowing to our feet again. Those of us who are over 40. I would like to pray. I want to pray for us that this would be, that we would be a church that values character over everything else. And that we never become people who start to think that competency is more important. But I also want to pray for the body of Christ because this year is, maybe it's not more worse than any other year, but it seems like a lot of this has been happening. And it's especially relevant because of this Ravi Zacharias thing. And I, that those who have heard that message and now seeing it invalidated, what happens to them? That's a heartbreaking thing to me. So I just would like to pray for that too. So God, we just, first God, we want to look at ourselves and our own value system and our own body, the people here in Living Hope Church. And we want to, God, we just want to ask you, Lord, would you protect us from forgetting this teaching from Jesus? That the fruit matters more than what the appearance is. That character matters more than giftedness. Character matters more than popularity. <laughs> and popularity and giftedness are no indicator of good character. God, help us to not take these things for granted in the way we relate to each other. God, that we will be good, godly friends who take nothing for granted. God, I pray that um, just for the church in the United States, as so many this year have fallen from, for one reason or another, God, as the reputation of the gospel is brought into disrepute over those things, God, I pray that by your spirit you would intervene. God, for those perhaps even millions of people that heard the gospel through Ravi Zacharias and are now hearing this news and questioning again whether or not you even exist. Lord, you have mercy and that you would reveal yourself to those people. God, that they would see that there was, that a false teacher does not mean the gospel is false. God, I pray that we would learn these lessons. God, that your church would learn these lessons now. God, that we would never become removed and distant and never make assumptions. God, I pray, too, that we would not become cynical, that you would guard us from that, that we would trust your spirit to reveal the truth and to, the Lord, that you, you are the one who is the fruit inspector. <laughs> and so we ask you to search us as individuals, every one of us. Lord, would you inspect us, inspect our lives? And would you convict us of sin that needs to be dealt with? Would you convict, convict us of hidden things, hidden agendas, hidden lies, hidden purposes, secret things that can one day destroy us. And God, I pray that you would protect Living Hope Church as you have from the beginning. 
that you would protect it from one of these kinds of failures. Not just for me, certainly me, but every leader, small group leader, everyone who has influence in this church. God, that you would build godly character into all of us. Thank you for protecting us. We're so grateful. It's not us. It's not our goodness. It's yours. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Love you all. Glad you're with us. We'll see you next time. Bye.